Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Stop, Drop, and Watch Bridgerton. Today, we're covering episode eight. I'm Sabrina. And I'm Kat. And first, before we begin, I just want to say thank you to everyone who's been listening to us and went on to give a little bit of background to why we even started this podcast. So for us, we actually live on separate sides of the U.S., so we really wanted to do something that was fun and a way to bond, even though we've been physically distanced. And we always assumed this would only be our friends and family listening to us. So, you know, it's just been really shocking and astonishing every week when we see more people have been joining in. Feel free to listen if you like us. If you don't, you know, feel free to move on. No problem. But again, thanks for your support and your patience. And so episode eight begins with a lady whistle down voiceover about the fastest engagement ever. I thought that was kind of random. Like we don't know that couple at all. But I think the larger point that she makes is around nobody except the people involved know what's really going on behind the marriage doors. One random small note on Lady Bridgerton's side table, the nightstand, there's a couple of portraits. One is clearly of Daphne and the other one is another brunette female. And if it is not Francesca, then I'm definitely like, she really favors Daphne so much that she's the only one to have her portrait on there. If it's Francesca, though, I'm more okay with it. And then it's just like the children who are away from home. The next scene is of Mr. Granville painting Daphne and the Duke. Yeah, this is, I mean, it was awkward. I can't imagine having to stand awkwardly for someone to paint me when I don't want to be in the portrait anymore. Like, you know when you're forced to be in a photo and they're like, smile, and you're like, I don't want to. <laughs> you know, I don't even want to be here. Also, Granville being the one person painting them was also kind of funny. It's a really small world over there in London. But whenever Simon and Daphne touch, they have like a moment, especially Daphne. Do you think touch does that much for you, Kat? I think touch can help when you're in an argument. It can definitely help diffuse some of the tensions. But I do think they kind of are overplaying, specifically Daphne is overplaying every single time they touch. It's too much. Yeah. So from here, we get back to the Bridgerton household and Eloise cannot leave Benedict alone about Genevieve. Like she just wants to know about Genevieve. Is she whistled down basically? And Benedict is like, you don't approve of my relationship with her because she's a working woman, not of our class. I don't think Eloise was able to really acquit herself. So Benedict definitely left the conversation thinking that she was judging him. Lady Bridgerton also announces that Francesca is coming home from Bath finally. And you know, the one thing I thought was, she said she's coming home tomorrow. It seemed kind of sudden. It really made me wonder, did something happen in Bath? Oh, I didn't think about that at all. I was just like, oh, she's like, someone flew the nest. She needs one back. You know, she like trades out the kids. But yeah, I guess something maybe happened Beth. Did she send a letter by express mail to get it there in time? Or, you know, maybe in her defense, she did send it a week ago and it just didn't arrive until the day before that she was supposed to arrive. That's true. But yeah, I was like, oh, is there another scandal that's about to drop on the Bridgerton household? You know, they finally cleaned up Collins. Speaking of Colin, Colin makes this snide comment about traveling and starting to hint that he might want to go somewhere too now. In the next scene, we're back in the Featherington household and Penelope and Marina are talking. Marina apologizes to Penelope. She thinks that the tea, her magic potion tea worked and she's no longer with child. So you were right that it was not supposed to be a poison for herself. It was just supposed to induce a miscarriage. I was surprised. I guess it's like trying to clear the air now. She's trying to make sure they're on good page. 
but her apology kind of revolves around like you were right about Colin. He's a good man with a good heart. And specifically, he'll see what you did for him one day. I mean, I feel like I feel like this series is setting up Colin and Penelope to end up together. And I'm really not here for it. Half of me is like, oh, my God, if they end up together, I'm quitting Richard. <laughs> but on, on the other hand, I'm pretty sure they are by now. Based on how everyone we know is reacting, including our guests, but even just like our other friends to Penelope and they love her. I feel like, yeah, they're setting it up so that they are going to end up together. Yeah, to be fair, I do really like Penelope. But I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> but I, it is... I don't know. This apology, it just, it felt bad. There's no winning anymore in this situation. So I'm glad she apologized, to be fair. But it's just like, you know, no one's happier really from this. I feel like their friendship's back on the right path. But we just don't know how long it's going to go on for. Like, what's, what's going to happen to Marina now? I thought that their friendship was basically over ever since that big showdown. And this is more just a before we fully part ways I don't see her wanting to necessarily continue this friendship. And even I think the fact that she alludes to that Colin might appreciate what she did for him one day is setting up that she thinks they could end up together. I I do think maybe their friendship looked like it would be over. But in terms of how Penelope was the one to find Marina when she had collapsed, like I feel like Penelope was still caring about her as a person. Like she would go check on her. Even in this scene, Penelope is the one that comes to Marina again. So I feel like even though obviously Penelope was very upset with Marina, like she can't fully distance herself because she does care on some level about her. When they're standing in that room, actually, a caller arrives for the Featheringtons and they look at him and we see him. We haven't seen this actor before, don't know who he is. But from Marina's face, it makes you wonder, is this Sir George? Are we finally seeing Sir George? Yeah, she definitely looks like she's seen a dead person walking with that reaction. So from here, we go to a Daphne and Lady Bridgerton scene where they're out on the town. Daphne is finally filling in her mother about they made the decision to go separate ways between the Duke and her. And her mother gives her some more advice here of saying, like, you need to forgive someone to be able to move forward. Daphne is now really no longer keeping those barriers up that we released on the first half of the season. And it seems like they've repaired their mother-daughter relationship and it's stronger than ever. Yeah, I love that for them. Like, Daphne needs that support. And I'm sure Lady Bridgerton appreciates getting back her favorite daughter into good graces. So from here, they're interrupted by the... Lady Featherington and Varley. Oh my god. Varley in this scene, like, it has so much sass. Like, I really, Kat, you mentioned wanting a backstory on Rose. Like, I want a backstory on all the servants I've decided because just her faces she makes while they're talking are so entertaining. And Lady Bridgerton is not having Lady Featherington fishing around for an invitation to the Hastings Ball. But Daphne very clearly throws her mom's words back in her face by telling her that she's willing to forgive the errors of the past and move forward. Lady B is being hypocritical, right? Like she doesn't want to forgive them. And Daphne's like, I'll show you. It's just it's just really funny to see someone like use your advice right afterwards, but it's not what you wanted at all. <laughs> I also thought it was funny that Barley somehow had someone tell her that a visitor has arrived, a Mr. Crane at their house and Daphne over here is and she just like goes along with them oh my gosh yeah Daphne I love her using her new duchess powers like she just comes along and says whatever she wants now from here we learn that the visitor is not George but his brother Sir Philip and that George actually passed away on the battlefield several weeks ago 
he was still writing to Marina. One interesting part of the letter that he was writing is that he said they would run away together, which makes me wonder, again, he's a soldier. He's not like a lieutenant or an officer. Is it possible that they wouldn't have been allowed to be together? Is he below Marina's social standing? Is that why they would have had to run away and or elope? Maybe some Gretna Green for you, Sabrina. Gretna Green, biggest. Um. (laughs) But I actually, I don't understand Marina's background. Is Marina actually the one with no social standing? It sounds like George was maybe better off in society than Marina was. And that was the reason they had to run away. And this scene between Marina and Daphne is painful. I mean, Marina is saying basically that, you know, I thought him a villain and he was not. It was me. What was intense about this scene for me, I guess this was the first time that I finally given up on the Colin-Marina relationship. I think Colin moved on pretty quickly, enough so to say that, like you've said before, he wasn't really in love with her. Maybe he was in love with the idea of her or was extremely flattered thinking that such a beautiful woman was in love with him. But I think For Marina, if she had gone through and married Colin and then learned that Sir George had been true the whole time, it would have devastated her and it would have hit in a totally different way than if she had known he was true to her, then decided to get married. So maybe in some ways it's actually also good for Marina to be able to live with the death of Sir George, to not feel like she'd completely betrayed him because she hadn't married someone else while thinking he was still alive. In the next scene, Eloise visits Genevieve and Genevieve's like, hey, the store is shut. Eloise kind of elbows her way in and starts a conversation about the Featheringtons. Yeah, this conversation, like the se- even the second launch through, I feel like I had more questions about what was Genevieve's purpose here. So Eloise is trying to ascertain that Genevieve is really Lady Whistledown and Genevieve does not say no in any way. She really makes it sound like she is Lady Whistledown, at least in Eloise's eye. And I've now, you know, I think we have these questions of like, why is Genevieve doing this? Is she Lady Whistledown? Definitely the first time I watched all of Bridgerton, I thought Genevieve was Lady Whistledown the whole time. Mostly from an early scene where she is remeasuring Marina and makes a comment about how the sizing is off now. I thought it was just like the full kind of confirmation of Lady Whistledown being Genevieve. But I also was intrigued by one line where she said something about, I have no intention of compromising anyone. And originally I thought she was talking just about Benedict and maybe she was trying to let Eloise know that she's not going to embroil her favorite big brother in some scandal. But the second time I was like, oh, maybe she does know who Lady Whistledown actually is and is coordinating with her. Yeah, in my second watch through, I definitely was wondering the same thing. I was like, is Genevieve helping whoever Lady Whistledown is? Not only providing the gossip, like she gets to overhear so much when all these women are visiting her for their dress fittings, but maybe even helping with some of logistics. Like she is a working class woman, like she can go into society where other people might not be able to. Then we have Daphne preparing for the Hastings Ball, and of course she runs into Simon. Yeah, I I, I just, I feel so overdone, like, all the time with their relationship. (laughs) But they do have a conversation here where she's basically asking him, why did your father deserve that vow from you? But he goes again back to, like, this is for your own good. You're better off without me. And I was like, oh my god, is this episode, like, four or five? Like, do we go back in time? Because it just sounds like them right before their engagement. 
I think the other thing that this made me think about is Daphne immediately leapt to the conclusion that he could have children and just didn't want to. And it turns out it was the right one. But if I were her, given his own background, I wonder if I would have actually believed that it was because his mother had died in childbirth and he was really traumatized and afraid of losing Daphne too. Or maybe he was just afraid he'd be a really terrible father, that it was in his genes. Yeah, on my watch through, I definitely was wondering, especially when they had all the portraits like panning to his mother. I was like, oh, is this the reason? From here, we get to move to the boxing match, the big one. And we get a scene between Will and his wife where they're basically talking about, you can win this fight and we'll have like a great time. And he's saying, maybe I should lose this fight. I can't keep fighting forever. They are the best example of marriage and communication in the show, hands down. Like, not only do they have an open and honest relationship where he tells her, but, you know, he's including her kind of in this. I definitely agree with you. I think he told her because they're talking about this will be enough money and she doesn't seem surprised at all. So I think they've discussed Lord Featherington's offer. I was also impressed by their relationship in the sense that She seemed to be supportive of him no matter which decision he made. She wasn't trying to tell him what to do. Um, I was also wondering, is this actually going to be enough money for them to survive on going forward? Maybe it is if they move out of London. I do really like your point about letting him make his own decision and just being supportive. I feel like that is something I've had to learn in my own relationship with my fiance. It's just you have to listen to them talk about it, offer your own insights, But at the end of the day, you have to let people make their own decisions because otherwise they'll hold it against you. Absolutely. Lord Featherington is there trying to place a really large bet. He even puts up the deed to his home, which I was like, that's crazy. Also, those two guys, like the two like thugs, I guess, of Regency England looked really weirdly out of place to me. Like, kind of in some ways, like, broke the scene. They didn't look like they belonged in Regency England. Maybe it was their hair. I'm not really sure. Yeah, I, when he said, take the deed to my house, I, I, like, my heart, like, even now saying it, my heart constricts. Like, I own a condo now, and I can't imagine giving anyone that. That's, like, so critical for your life. It's really just helped me put in perspective how desperate he is. And we also get to see Sienna with another man. Actually, speaking of hair, this guy's hair is crazy. And I think he has like a weird mustache too, if I remember right. Sienna specifically looks really proud and sassy to be with another man right in front of Anthony. But they also like just can't stop looking at each other. In the Featherington household, we have Lady Featherington talking about how the girls will have to rewear their dresses to the ball. And Sir Philip proposes to Marina. Yeah, Lady Featherington is super happy about this. But I actually thought this proposal was really well worded. In terms of Sir Philip, he says, like, allow me to realize my late brother's wishes. He would have wanted you to be cared for and supported. Like, allow me to do my duty. And I feel like he put it in such a nice way that if she had accepted him, then it would have not felt so bad possibly for her to do so. Right. It would have been less of a favor to her and more of her bestowing her favor on him and their family. But I thought it was crazy that you have this man who's never met a woman before. She's pregnant with your brother's child and you're proposing to her and planning to spend the rest of your life together. I'm really curious about his motivation here. Was it just some 
sense of duty or some serious obligation where their family felt like they had to do this or else they would be completely embroiled in shame and scandal. Yeah, I was wondering, did he feel like this was a sign? His brother's been dead to him for weeks now, and he gets this letter saying that his brother has a child. So I wonder if he just kind of read into that and was like, this is like what I have to do. It's my duty. My brother wants it. And this is what I can do for him since his life ended so early. Is there not some other option where he could wish her the best, but also provide financial support for her and the baby throughout the rest of her life, like a pension of sorts without having to marry her himself? I was a little surprised he didn't offer to do anything. He's like, okay, I'll go if you dismiss me. And I couldn't tell when Marina said no, if Sir Philip was disappointed or relieved or what was going through his head, actually. I feel like he was, a, I think he was just taken aback. I don't think he was expecting that to happen. I think he just seemed a bit in shock. It was just so, so far from what he expected. Back at the boxing match, even from just these kind of short shots, it really looks like the Beast is outmatched and is not that good at boxing. Yeah, Anthony, his gaze or like whatever you want to call it, I call it death glare at Sienna when she's sitting with her other suitor. Like she looks really uncomfortable, but she also has like the confidence to stare him directly back in the eyes. And even rewatching this, I was kind of surprised. I I didn't see this leading straight into them having sex under the bleachers. I thought this was like going to be more. But yeah, they have sex right under those bleachers. They can't seem to keep apart. And then Mondrick loses and he definitely could have won. Yeah, I was curious why he didn't just take the punch, like take the real punch instead of playing it off. Like that was that was some bad acting. He really looked like he was about to win and then just seemingly just let the beast take a huge swing at him. But Simon seems to definitely notice that something is up and those gamblers also kind of exchange a little bit of a suspicious look between them. And we get back to the Hastings household, and I want to comment on Lady Danbury's style here. She's definitely throwing off some, like, Ursula vibes for me. She was in this purple outfit with a really high neck. But it reminds me of last episode. I think I say, like, she feels like the queen of the underworld or, like, the underground. And she really does come off like it in this type of, like, dark look. She catches Daphne snooping through the old letters, and she gives her some really good advice where she says... I just showed the Duke what he was capable of all along. And I was like, wow, this is serious advice in terms of don't tell them what to do. Basically incept them so they feel like it was their own idea all along. I love it. So from there, we get back to the boxing match. This is so suspicious. Like Simon sees Lord Featherington fleeing from Will's tent. Like, God, could like Lord Featherington be more obvious that something was going on? And... Simon basically tells Will, saying, like, nice nice performance you put on. What happened to your honor? Right. And Will comes back to him saying, the most honorable thing you can do is take care of your family. Yeah, I really loved this this comment from Will, saying, like, you're angry, but not with me. And, uh, like, he's such, like, the best friend you could ever have. And he's just super wise. Like, I really love his character so far and the development we've seen here. But he gives out the best like hard-hitting advice that Simon needs. And the only other thing is I am glad that Lord Featherington kind of immediately came to Will and presumably paid him out. I'm also curious, what did you think of Will's decision here? It's hard. I mean, that it, it must be really hard to take for your honor and your confidence levels. He has been working at this probably for years. But at the same time, could I see myself doing something similar if it was to give my family the lifestyle that I really wanted to. 
I probably could. I, I think I, in the end of the day, it'd be really hard because <laughs> I'm very competitive. But I don't, like, I don't blame him for it. His boxing career could be over at any point in time if he gets seriously injured. So I can understand this decision he made. I agree. I think, you know, in our modern day, we know about football and CTE and, like, the trauma that that can cause. The same thing is true with boxing. They're not even wearing helmets or any sort of protective gear. So I think he made the right decision. At least he made the right decision for Mm -hmm. him and his family. The other thing that's really great is that his wife does know about it, didn't say, you know, do this and it's over or I'll never forgive you. So like you said, I'm also really competitive and it would be hard for me to throw a match like this if I knew I was clearly better, if it was in front of everyone like he's doing. But if at least your partner, your biggest supporter also was in on the secret, I think that could make it a little bit easier to bear. Yeah, definitely. I think him, including his wife in this decision... And having this support just shows how strong like marriage and relationships can be. From here, we get to see the Duke and Daphne at breakfast. And I really enjoyed the way that Daphne has played this. She basically says like, oh, Francesca's coming home. My whole family is gathering. My brothers will think it's suspicious. If you don't come, would you like to? And I thought she's like, she's really getting better at this marriage and relationship thing. Like she's giving him kind of the same way that Philip gave Marina the out of saying like, you know, you're doing me the favor. She's working this into her language as well. I did think it was funny, though, that she's still so worried about appearances in terms of what their relationship looks like and is perceived by to other people when they're about to live separately for the rest of their lives. And it's the second time she's kind of used that on him. The first time was during the portrait where she said, you need to stay for our ball. And I do just think it's really funny. Like everyone is going to notice, right, if they start spending basically all of their time apart going forward. So they're kind of just delaying the inevitable. In the Bridgerton household, Benedict and Eloise are talking about Genevieve again. And Anthony actually comes over, overhears it. And Benedict tells Anthony that he's seen Genevieve. Anthony looks really surprised. And you're not sure how he's going to react, if it's going to be another kind of Colin situation. Yeah, they're all like really surprised that Anthony's okay with this. And at first I was like, why is Anthony okay with this? Like, is he loosening up? Is he learning from his mistakes with this past? Or is it just because he's very happy after having sex with Sienna? I think it's the latter. I think they just hooked up. He's feeling good. He's building alliances. Benedict doesn't realize it. But by him blessing his relationship with Genevieve, he's going to expect and kind of put Benedict on the spot to do the same thing for if and when his relationship with Sienna comes out. Smart moves by Anthony. So all is happy and well inside of the Bridgerton household for once. Like Simon's having a great time with the children. Francesca doesn't get a whole lot of time in this, you know, episode in spite of the big news that her coming home makes. But we're starting to kind of see like she's the musical one of the family. She seems happy to be home. Yeah, I wish we had someone who is musical between the two of us who tells if she's better than Daphne on the piano forte. But we don't know that. But... I hope she is, given all the practice she's doing. True. Though I was thinking right when she appeared in this scene, I was like, man, must be rough to be like cast for this huge Netflix show and get to make one appearance in the last episode. (laughs) Right. We also see Hyacinth and Gregory playing with Simon, you know, doing that whole like, wouldn't you be a great father? Look how great he is with kids scene. I was also wondering, do you think Netflix will have to recast them, find like more adult actors for their seasons? Or are they going to be able to age quickly enough. Oh, 
I guess that's probably like seven or eight seasons from now if they go in age order. I don't think they can do that. But I, I do hope they get to at least enjoy a few more seasons of being in this character. Also, I had a comment. Simon playing with them, they are pretty old for him to making like horse noises and them like eating it up. It seemed a little unbelievable to yeah, me. Yeah, I agree. Like, I don't remember off top of head how old they're supposed to be, but at least looking at those actors, I was like, he's playing with them like they're like four. Mm-hmm. Also, it felt like Simon was like proud of his playing ability with them like he's making eyes at Daphne being like oh look at me like and I, I you know Daphne's like eating it up but I was kind of confused why he was even doing that like why make that kind of smug sassy look at Daphne when he's been having this continued argument about having kids or not in the Featherington household Lady Featherington tells them you'll be able to have new dresses again you know this is great your dowry is back and Philippa and Prudence look really surprised. I guess they never knew that their dowries were in jeopardy. But you know what I was thinking here is that Marina, Marina knew that they were having financial problems. She was the one who backed up Lady Featherington at Genevieve's. And it made me think again, Marina is Lady Featherington's true spiritual heir. From here, another scene is getting set up at the Hastings Ball. The portrait is already done. Amazing. Granville is super talented to finish a huge portrait that size. Looks pretty nice too. And that whole courtyard scene is also just really pretty. I can't believe they're hanging chandeliers in the middle of a courtyard, but it's pretty amazing. Like they're definitely showing that they have the wealth. This setup makes you think this is going to be the most beautiful ball of the entire show. Just in time for the end of season one, in fact. And from here, we get taken to Anthony and Sienna having a great time together. And yeah, it seems like all is well again. This is the happiest we've seen Anthony. He kind of tells her that he promises to dance with no other lady. He actually wants her to come with him to the ball, saying that I'm a Viscount, my sister is a Duchess, no one will dare say a thing. And she specifically says, no one would dare say a thing to you. Actually, right before he invites her to go with him, they're sharing a lingering kiss. And there's this like look in Sienna's face where she starts to pull away. I think she's scared of catching feelings again. And these two have a real magnetic attraction. I also think it was very intelligent of her to recognize that if they did go together, that Anthony will be fine and will always be fine. She's going to be the one who has to endure the criticism. And it takes a very special sort of person and circumstances, I think, to deal with that and be okay with it. This reminds me, again, how every episode I reference Jane Austen novels, but in Pride and Prejudice, towards the end when Elizabeth Bennet is confronted by Mr. Darcy's aunt. She tells her that, yeah, it would suck if his family hated me or that people looked down on us, but being his wife would be a happy enough thing that I don't care. And I think you have to be at that point where you're so in love with someone else, you so believe that they will support you through anything and not allow anything to come between you two to be willing to put yourself at the mercy of a scandal-hungry, vicious ton. And I do, this scene reminded me of one of the first, maybe in the first episode, where I think, Kat, you were kind of wondering, like, how much does Sienna want to be invited to an event like this? Like, did she feel left out? But in this scene, like, she 
makes it sound like she doesn't want to go to the ball. Maybe, but I also think some of it might just be her justifying to herself and to him why she doesn't need to go and she shouldn't feel hurt because it's not actually what she wants. You kind of tell yourself, well, I don't want it anyway. Oh, it's stupid for these reasons. It felt a little bit like that to me. So from here, we get back to the Hastings ball and Daphne and the Duke are staring at their own portrait and they're really back to their pre-marriage selves. Like, it really felt like them in the promenades when they are still pretending with their ruse. They're bantering back and forth. This is kind of like their relationship at its best. Like this is how they talk to one another. They seem like one of those couples that has the most fun in a forbidden romance when people don't really know what the real deal is. Like the secret office romances or those kind of things. They, they love fooling other people. And the guests start arriving here. I was also wondering, did a dress code get handed out for this ball? Because everyone is wearing like the Bridgerton blue for the most part, except for the Featheringtons obviously. Yep. We see Will and his wife arrive and she is wearing a necklace with a giant new gemstone. I think that's the largest gemstone we've seen this entire show. Eloise arrives with her mom. It's her first real ball before she's kind of officially out out. And... When she's coming down the staircase, this guy is standing there at the staircase and he kind of stares at her and she says to him, maybe you should paint a picture. And it's like very much the Regency era version of the like, take a picture last longer kind of a comeback. It actually made me laugh out loud. I know it was kind of a cheesy line that I'm sure no one actually said back then. Yeah. And her mother reminds her a lot here that this is a rehearsal. Like don't, don't stress out too much. And Daphne even gives her an out of saying like, if you want to hide in the library, I won't say anything. And I really feel like the Bridgertons are just being a lot more supportive of each other. I know Daphne gives Eloise a compliment here, saying that she looked exquisite. Who does that remind you of? Rip Prince Friedrich. Oh my god, can you imagine if Friedrich and Eloise got together? I can't. (laughs) That would be super entertaining. (laughs) (laughs) This is your new dream pairing. Mine is just that Colin and Penelope don't get together, and yours is Friedrich comes back. And this has another, like, Daphne and Eloise have another moment here where Eloise says, thank you for being so perfect so that I do not have to be. And I was like, oh, my God, is she taking advice? Like, is she taking Penelope's advice and recognizing how much what Daphne has done is going to help her in the way she wants to make her own life? Yeah, I think so. In fact, it's actually a very similar comment to the earlier arguments they had. But this time there was no venom in Eloise's voice. Like she actually meant it and was recognizing that by having Daphne be so successful that Eloise has more freedom than she would have ever had. Yeah, I love it. I think Daphne was definitely surprised. I know she fully recognized what was happening here. It was a great moment of growth from Eloise. At the ball, Lady Featherington is approached by Lady Cowper. They kind of make jokes at her and barbs, but Lady Featherington responds with circumstances can change overnight. Uh, and God, the scene, like the setup for this is so bad. Like basically Lord Featherington is at a brothel. He's taken into a room, but instead of a lady in there, it's the two gamblers. And specifically, they put a bottle of poison down on the table. And I was like, oh, like how little she knows how much something can change in one night. And you know what's funny is the first time I watched this, I did not notice the label. I thought they just put down a bottle of brandy or something and they were going to very aggressively force him to admit what he had done or pay them back or something. But the second time watching it, 
It's a little weird slash cheesy that the bottle says poison across it, is it not? Yeah, I, it did take me my second watch through as well to see that label. The first time I really thought they were just going to like beat him up to death. Like I feel like the door was going to close and there was going to be like seven or eight other guys behind it. But yeah, the, the bottle of poison was <laughs> very obvious. Thanks, Netflix. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're like, we don't want any misunderstandings about what's about to go down behind these doors. But specifically, doors. please watch it at least two times to make sure you understand. <laughs> at the ball, we also get to see a scene between Colin and Penelope. Specifically, they have some awkward eye contact, and you can see Colin makes the decision to walk over there and have the conversation. Colin opens up by offering her an apology. She really goes in here, and she says, like, you should never apologize for being in love. You should declare it fervently and loudly. And she's like, Colin, I wish to tell you something. And... Colin's like, me too. I wish to tell you something too. Well, Colin is leaving. He's like, it's you who inspired me to do my travels, which like, oh, slap in the face for Penelope. And Penelope doesn't admit what, you know, she was about to tell Colin. She's here. She's like, I forgot. Good luck on your tour. And I wonder, I mean, it was such an obvious buildup to a love declaration. Was Colin avoiding that purposely or is he just so oblivious that he just kept going? I'm not sure if he realized it or not. It's hard for us watching it to think that you wouldn't realize because it was so obvious it felt like. But at the end when she's like basically barely concealing that she's about to start crying, I think maybe some realization was dawning on his face. He didn't pursue her. He didn't go after her or anything though. So I don't know. Why do you think she didn't tell him at this point that she was in love with him? I feel like in her eyes when he said I have something to tell you too maybe she was wishing that like fantasizing that they were both about to proclaim their love for each other here and it was just such the other side of the coin of what got tossed out for her that I I don't blame her for not telling him like we know that she's not great at like declaring her feelings and her intentions so having this thrown at her and I would have probably lost it too I I don't think I would have told him like what what are you going to gain from this when he's going to leave for, we don't know how long, probably at least a year. I mean, I think they say Simon traveled for six years before he finally came back. Eloise actually comes over. She sees Penelope and she, for the first time, kind of recognizes that something is going on and she's upset. And poor Eloise, most ineffective detective, instead of being able to kind of finally suss it out and find out that her best friend is in love with her brother, she's pushed to approaching the queen. Yeah, and actually, okay, I feel like Eloise has finally proven that she is a smart Bridgerton in this scene because she realizes that she's not going to be able to talk to the queen, but does know that maybe she can get something out of Brimsley. From there, we get to a scene where Anthony goes to pick up Sienna for the ball. He even has some flowers in hand, but when he knocks on the door, he's actually opened by the other man, the crazy-haired guy from Sienna. But specifically, this guy has no pants on. He answers the door just in his shirt. Right. Who does that? Whether it's Regency-era England or today, I think it's really strange to open the door with no pants on, and it's not even your own home. Like, that's Sienna's home. Also, now thinking about this, I'm like, this is such a slap in the face of reality not only is sienna rejecting him here opening the door to see her with another man presumably probably having sex with him yeah great timing so so she's like go answer the door without your pants on please (laughs) right yeah can you actually take off your pants before you and she's actually fully clothed now that i think about it she comes maybe only like 20 seconds later yeah exactly in any case sienna gives a very (laughs) impassioned speech here to anthony basically saying that their romance is over 
She said, I'm the only one looking out for me, ensuring my own future. And I know that you basically never will or nor will anyone. And I thought it was just really wise words. I give out this advice to my friends pretty often, even in career context, that the only one who cares about you is you. Yeah, definitely. And she tells them, I think three times you need to let me go. I am totally fine with who I am and you're not fine with who I am. That's okay, but you need to go. Anthony answers here saying like, you must have known I tried. And I think you can really see that he's torn apart by this. And they're both, they can see that Anthony was trying to make some amends, but it's just not enough. And he finally admits that, you know, she's right. And he's really, really sorry. And I was very close to tears in this scene too. It really felt like a genuine apology to me for the first time from Anthony to even anyone in the show. Like it came from his heart. And she was really resolute here. No matter what he said, no matter how apologetic or regretful he looked, she knew that it was over. I was actually wondering, he showed up pretty late. Like it was dark out when he rolled up with his flowers. Eloise had already left the ball, presumably in the previous scene. We saw guests arriving when it was still light out hours before, I would guess. And it made me wonder, do you think that she had just decided that it was over, over when she was waiting and waiting for him and he didn't show up until the ball had already begun and was in full swing? I guess I didn't read it that way. I, I don't know how time really works in the series, if it's really always just so sequential. But it felt like to me that she had made this decision earlier in the day. Like they had this conversation in the morning where he asked her to the ball and she had all the way until the evening to make her decision. But I feel like she must have decided earlier. Bringing over the man was probably a conscious decision of like, she's going to stick to her guns and play this future out instead of the one with Anthony. It just didn't feel like something she had. Maybe he was an hour or two late and had kind of this like the straw that broke the camel's back. I guess I'm just not sure because in the morning when he left, she seemed like she was willing to go. She didn't say definitively either way, yes, I'll go or no, I won't go. But it kind of ended with them still like very lovey-dovey. And I assumed she, they would go yeah. together. So I, I guess it just kind of felt a little bit like both like, you know, movie romances and also real life when you just keep giving someone second and third chances and eventually you have to draw a line somewhere. And I thought maybe she had drawn it that afternoon when he didn't show up and she called up her crazy haired guy friend to come over instead. It's, it's totally possible. I don't know. But I felt like it was almost like his mistake for letting that gap of time happen. Right. Like if he hadn't left, if he had stayed with her all day, I think she would have gone. I don't think she would have ended the relationship. I, I, I also wonder, like, did she go talk with Genevieve? Like, did she go get some, you know some advice from friends on this before. Right. Did she get some real talk about even if you go to this ball with him and he acknowledges you as your lover, people are always going to look down on you and be talking shit about you. Is that what you really want for right. the rest of your life? And having a partner who's been ashamed of that up until now, unlike the crazy haired guy who seems deferential to Anthony, by the way, the fact that he doesn't get pissed or try and bite him at the door when he shows up. It makes it seem like he's probably of lesser social standing, but he's since, as far as we can tell, has been pretty open about his relationship with Sienna. Yeah, it does make me wonder what his standing is. Is he just like a wealthy merchant or something? Like he was in the normal part mm -hmm. of the crowd at the concert that we saw, not up in the boxes. So good question. I don't know. Do you think this is the last we'll see of Sienna? So it seems like season two is going to center around Anthony. 
I would be sad if Sienna didn't come back. On the other hand, she literally shut the door on their relationship. I could see, we don't know how they first met or how they got together. I could definitely imagine that in season two to show some of his backstory and why he is the way he is, showing how they met and some flashbacks, but... That's what I'm guessing is the best we'll get. It's too bad in my opinion. I feel like this scene was it for me in terms of like turning me more onto Team Sienna. Not only did she look like beautiful here, Mm -hmm. but I just loved how strong she was in the scene. From there, we get to see Eloise at the printer's press waiting and actually saving Lady Whistledown. My question from the scene was, do you think Eloise actually saw who it was inside of the carriage? I don't think it was obvious in the moment. We couldn't see into it either. Obviously, she was closer, but it was dark out. I don't think so, but I also don't think she was particularly trying to, which is a little bit strange because it could have been anyone, you know, not necessarily Lady Whistledown, and she just told them, leave. Yeah, I thought it was kind of weird that the carriage, like, stopped. Like, they were almost, like, gonna talk to Eloise, and then she's like, run, it's a trap. Maybe she was going to see, like, actually make sure it was Genevieve first, And then changed her mind and was like, just run, like get out of here instead. From there, we get to move back to the ball. Mm -hmm. And Lady Danbury lays down some wisdom on the Duke again, saying that your pride will cost you everything and leave you nothing. Don't let this happen to you too, like your father. And this was pretty powerful stuff because the last thing that he wants to be is like his father. You can see that it hit its mark with him. And we get to see some more advice given here from Lady B to Daphne. Daphne's basically asking, is it so different for men to know that they are in love? Like everything else seems different, which I thought was pretty funny. (laughs) But basically Lady B tells her that I miss everything about your father, but our marriage had its own trials. We had to choose to love each other every single day. And it's a choice that's never too late to make. She also tells her at some point, you're a Bridgerton. There's nothing you can't do. And I was like, thank God someone recognizes their privilege, because <laughs> I'm not sure anyone else really does. I, I just really love these scenes between Lady Bridgerton and Daphne. I feel like they have really good on-stream chemistry with each other. Like, it really does feel like a mother and daughter relationship. And I just like this whole section, this whole episode maybe even, has just so much good like motherly advice. Then Daphne and the Duke, they say one last waltz. It's yes. actually a polka. This is the thing that... Basically, everyone I know, especially my friends, Kevin and Jason, really called out that, why are they calling this a waltz? It's so clearly a Yes, even I recognize that. I'm like, they're literally galloping. And from there, it starts pouring rain. And (laughs) Daphne is just having such a weird moment here. Like, even the second time I watched it, I'm like, what is going through her head when she's, like, letting her mouth be Mm -hmm. wide open? I'm trying to think, like, rain and, like books or other movies is supposed to be like symbolic of like cleansing and like a new start so maybe that's what's going on but i couldn't i couldn't actually tell but lady danbury dismisses everyone including the queen which i'm like does she is she allowed mm-hmm. to do that i was also thinking about their brand yes new painting they just had that portrait made poor granville it's getting soaked. I think it was an oil painting like that's not gonna last and it was too bad it was actually quite a good painting i thought What did you think of Daphne's declaration to the Duke here? I liked it. I feel like this was like a full circle moment for Daphne. I think her referencing that she's tired of pretending and telling him that she loved all of him, specifically even the parts that he thought were too dark and painful for her to love, was really good. And I think her mom like definitely influenced the speech. I thought it was actually a really well written like speech from her. Like we haven't really got to hear 
uh, her love words to Simon so far in the series. So I was happy with it. I'm glad she was so honest and really communicated where she stood because up until then, it seemed like she was just going to let him walk out. It's a little too perfectly written. And like the lines were, I, I know that she just took them from exactly what her mom had said to her, but it was just a little too scripted in a sense. Like, I don't think anyone is that eloquent in real life when they're giving such a moving speech. And it felt like it was only triggered by the rain and the guests leaving. I don't think she had been, we didn't see her, you know, planning or like thinking about it like we have in previous episodes before she assaulted him. You really see the wheels turning in her head as they're sitting across from each other. And we didn't see that this time. So it felt more spontaneous, but it didn't sound spontaneous. Yeah, I don't know. I think a, a lot of this whole show is really well scripted. Like even in Sienna's prior scene, she's like, uh, I will not let you set me adrift as you run your own course. You know, she's like talking about like ship references and like mm-hmm. no one brings that up into normal conversation. I feel like it's very eloquent speech. To be fair, I think Sienna, like you said, probably had way more time to prepare for Daphne might have had a lot. I don't know. In any case, like I just think it, it's a movie or like, it's a show. They're going to have some very nicely put arguments of love. I think it just sometimes breaks the scene for me in a sense where it reminds me again oh this is a tv show this is a fantasy when it's a little too perfect sounding or it doesn't feel Mm -hmm. as authentic and there are some actors who are really good at delivering very authentic lines i think sandra oh is one who continuously surprises me and impresses me by even when she's given really cheesy or kind of uh, corny lines she makes them feel good like do you remember that scene from Grey's anatomy when she tells meredith Mm -hmm. that you are my person like, what a corny line, but the way she delivers it made it a cult classic line. So Daphne leaves him there without him actually saying anything. I was a little bit surprised that she wasn't even going to let him try to say something. So I think I actually understood that, where if I had just declared my heart so openly and the guy is standing there, his mouth agog, I would also probably be like, okay, now I need to leave. And I think she did it fairly gracefully. She wasn't like running out the door you know like crying or anything and she knew that the duke wasn't yet ready to give her an answer and that she wouldn't press him for it yeah i guess it made it a little bit more realistic then i feel like in other novels you would know it's just gonna end in there it's gonna be like a happy ending right in that moment Mm -hmm. back at the featherington household we have all the servants gathered when they arrive home from the ball and immediately you know something is up and it feels very uncomfortable. Lady Featherington's first thought, her first question is, where is Marina? And obviously she just had a scare with Marina recently when she took the miscarriage tea. Marina does appear. She looks like mm-hmm. she looks like a ghost, almost like a dead person yeah, walking, dead. right? And we find out that it's actually Lord Featherington who's dead. Yeah, and not only that, like she immediately runs into his study and looks into the envelope that I assume contains the money that he had won. And yeah, she, Portia, Lady Featherington, finally loses it here. I really felt for her again. I think to see her finally lose it after everything she's been through, you can see that like it, it's actually finally gotten to her. It's more touching in some ways because we've seen how much she's been through already. And in terms of why the money or the deed was gone, I think it wasn't super clear to me if he had taken it with Mm -hmm. him to the brothel or someone had come, one of the thugs had come to steal it. What was your read of the situation? I'm not sure either because 
when he first came home with the money, he told her, here's half of it. I've already used half of it to pay off my men. And I would have assumed that he left that other half there. Like she was able to pay Genevieve again. I don't know where the money went. I would assume it couldn't easily be taken because right. the servants were there and they would have told her maybe. But yeah. Well, supposedly the reason and the way he got into this mm-hmm. mess was through gambling. So it's possible that he took the other half and was like, oh, gambler's luck. You know, I just had a great day. I'll go double it again. So from there, we return to the Hastings household probably the morning after the ball. And the Duke actually finds Daphne on her, like, settee, which I thought even the room was already transformed into a Bridgerton room. The wallpaper is all Bridgerton blue. I thought it was really nice. I'm like, she at least made herself at home here. But the Duke comes to her saying that he doesn't want to be alone. He doesn't know how to be the man that she deserves. And I think Daphne's response, I, they, they work through this together, basically saying, like, you stay and we get through this together. And I was like, okay, this is like, it's pretty, it's pretty touching scene. Right. And then they have sex again. And <laughs> oh my God, sorry. Her. I like how you, you skipped over, like, basically, like, this very touching, like, moment. <laughs> where... <laughs> I, I wasn't that touched. I thought it was good. But it's okay. Okay, they had sex again. Great. He finishes inside. So huge deal based on all of their previous interactions. And I think, at least for me, maybe for you too, really reminded me of what Anjali commented on when she joined us in episode six, that this is actually a really intimate thing. And they really upped the ante in terms of intimacy by focusing only on their faces this time. Typically, we see a lot of Simon butt and body here, it was just their faces and their reactions to each other. Then we see Penelope crying into Eloise's shoulders. Eloise is very comforting here, saying that she's there to help her every day to endure the loss of her father. I think this is where we see Eloise has just gotten so much more empathetic throughout this series so far. And I also remembered in this scene that Eloise has also lost her father. So I'm sure more than most friends, especially of their age, she's able to really understand and empathize what Penelope is going through right now. We move back to the Featherington household, where we see Lady Featherington staring at what we assume is her late husband's bed. And this is actually really hard to imagine, even though they weren't the love match that Lady Bridgerton and her husband was. They were going through such tough times, and overnight, he's gone. Like There was no period for her to get ready for how big this change would be. Lord Featherington had not been an equal partner and peer to her throughout their relationship, at least recently from what we can tell. But at least up until now, she had another adult who was in the same boat as her and wanted the same things. And now he's gone. And Marina comes in here and asks, how did you endure 22 years of this marriage without love? And Lady Featherington's response I thought was some really great advice, actually. She says that you find the small things to love, the bigger things like babies, and eventually it all adds up to be enough. And you can really see their relationship has developed so much. She tells Marina that you're strong, perhaps even stronger than I am, so you're going to do well. And we do get to see that Marina is actually leaving with Sir Philip in the next scene. You also have to kind of wonder how they got Sir Philip to come back. Like, she just told him, nope don't need you was she like oh actually i am pregnant please come back or i don't even know if she told him that she had lost the baby do you remember she didn't she she told lady featherington okay so i guess she was just like changed my mind please come pick me up in a carriage you know the day before or whatever the timeline was he'd just been freed 
from this promise and now to be pulled back in. It takes a mature person to follow through after they've just been released from something. And Varley comes up to Lady Featherington, passes her a piece of paper, and says, we know now who's going to inherit the Featherington estate. And we don't know who it is. My only hope is that it's someone like Matthew Crowley from Downton Abbey, because he was such an interesting character who really came and shook up that show. We'll see what happens, I guess, in season two. Also, Colin gets sent off on his own travels. Kind of sad. I I assume we probably won't see much of him in season two, or I'm, I'm not sure what season he'll be in the Bridgerton Order. Anthony talks to Simon and Daphne, says that he's ready to start finding his Viscountess. He is basically looking for a relationship where love is not part of the equation. Yep, I think we're getting a setup of what his plot will be for his cycle of the (laughs) show. But basically, he doesn't want to have love, doesn't think he deserves it, or it's going to be part of his life. I'm sure it'll go the opposite way, is what we assume next season. But I like Anthony, so I'm ready to see him have this development. In the scene, Eloise also learns from Benedict that he was with Genevieve the previous night, so there was no way that Genevieve was in that carriage. Therefore, most likely not Lady Whistledown. And Eloise believes Benedict right away, which I thought was kind of interesting because he is in a relationship of some sorts with Genevieve. Maybe he knows she's Whistledown. Maybe he was covering for her. It seems like not, though, because we immediately find out that actually Lady Whistledown was Penelope all along. Why did you say her name like that? (laughs) Because I feel like everyone else knew it was her from the beginning, and I had no idea until this point. Yeah, I think my original suspicions for Lady Whistledown were first Lady Danbury, then it moved quickly to Genevieve after. I did start wondering a little bit if it was someone else, like Penelope or Eloise. I even thought for a second, I'm like, maybe it's Benedict. Maybe he's working with Genevieve. I'm glad it's revealed now. It wasn't like a huge part of the plot to me. I never really watched Gossip Girl. And I know that it was a big question throughout the entire series and books. So I'm happy it's revealed. I don't really want to waste a lot of time or extra plot lines on that first watch through I think I was really intent on this question the entire time but on the second watch through like since I already knew it was Penelope I think I kept just looking for those small moments where Penelope was there overlooking so I'm glad it's out there at the same time it's a very interesting choice for this show it makes me wonder like what's season two how much is this still going to be a center point of the plot or what's going to be like the major subplot other than Anthony's love mm-hmm. interest yeah I think it does raise the question of How important will Lady Whistledown's releases be in the second season? Will she still be breaking news? Is this the way to ramp down the Whistledown reports and focus more on just characters and their own storylines? So we get pushed far forward in time where Daphne is actually having a baby. And in this scene, I think the main differences that we're supposed to look at is that he's just so different than his father. He's right there beside Daphne holding her hand rather than like immediately scooping off the baby like his father did. He also comments saying that the name must begin with the letter A. It's a family tradition that we have to keep. I thought it was a cute like, I I mean, this is a happy ending already, of course. So it just kind of put the extra little like cherry on top for their life is perfect in terms of what they wanted. The only thing that this jump ahead made me think We don't know if this means that we're jumping forward another nine months. Maybe Colin is halfway through his tour and will come back mid-season two. Oh, that'd be great. And I've heard before that the bee has a meaning in this series and we get to see the bee 
leaving Daphne's room after the end of this? Do you know the meaning that everyone's referring to? I have a feeling you know the meaning, having read the books. No? Oh, no. Sorry, no, I was actually asking. (laughs) Oh, okay, okay. So I will tell you my guesses. I haven't read the books, so I don't know. The bee is often associated with royalty. So I think it's maybe there's some of that, especially given that the bee seems to be very associated with the Bridgerton family. I don't know exactly what that means, but maybe the family will continue to edge closer and closer to royalty. The second thing it makes me think of is matriarchal societies. So bees have a queen. Most of the workers are actually females. I think males are actually just around to mate for the most part. And Bridgerton is actually very much like that, where you have the queen whose king is no longer lucid. You have Lady Danbury, who's lost her husband. Lady Bridgerton, who's lost her husband. Lady Featherington just lost her husband. The Duke's father has died early on. So you really have a lot of these strong women, maternal characters who are guiding the next generation. Hmm. What did you think? Why do you think the bee keeps showing up? I think we see that Bee originally lands on the Richardson household in the very beginning of this episode or the series. So I was wondering when you were saying like the Queen Bee, it lands there. The season is going to be focused on Daphne. It follows Daphne throughout the whole season and then now has left her. So maybe it's meaning like a new focus is going to happen. The other thing mm. is like birds and bees. <laughs> you know, like she's pregnant. She's done. <laughs> like there's a baby. Maybe it can move on with its life. Like it doesn't have to help anymore. So that was season one. Thank you so much for joining us. Huge thanks again to all of our guests who came and suffered through our strange submarine questions. Also, special shout out and thanks to my partner who made our logo and helped a lot with some of the sound editing. Yeah, and we might be back for season two. So no promises. No promises, but let us know what you think. If you can give us a follow or subscribe, let us know if you're going to come back and listen to us next time. But for now, that's it.